but so that's as far as as far as they go. August 22nd, 2016, my one-year anniversary, I lost my wedding ring. I'll tell you how that happened. My wife and I, we were on the, uh, at the time, we were on the East Coast in a Princeton, New Jersey, and we went to the Jersey Shore for our one-year anniversary. Jersey Shore, nothing like the TV show. You need to understand this. It's, a, it's actually a really beautiful place. Like, it's a good chunk of the state. There's just town after town and uh, wonderful boardwalks. There's beautiful scenery and, and food and, and sunrises, sunsets. And it's just wonder it's wonderful. Five stars. Highly recommend the Jersey Shore. Um, we were there and just spending some time on the beach. And we got up from, you know, our, our day, spent some time together and swimming and all that. And uh, packed up all our stuff, looked at my finger, and I realized my ring's gone. My wedding ring is gone. And we looked everywhere for it. We scoured through all of our belongings, everything that we'd packed up. We looked through the sand. We were just, you know, pawing through. We were trying to rack our brains. We were calling Home Depot to see if they had some special, you know, like a thing to, to kind of to help us find it or something or to rent a, I don't know, a shovel so we could dig really deep. No luck. And I was about to despair. I, I was starting to lose hope because I'm thinking, like, what, what does this say about my marriage? the future of my marriage, that after one year, I can't even hold on to a wedding ring. Like, what does this tell us? Um, but then uh, a savior showed up. There was this guy on the beach with um, a metal detector, and he was looking for things. I, I ran after him. I ran, got him. I told him our situation. I said, man, can you please help us? I can't find my wedding ring. <laughs> I, I lost it in the sand. It's our anniversary. And of course, he, uh, well, not of course, but he obliged, and he came came over, and he's running his metal detector over, over the air. We were sitting, and we're just like, you know, crossing up and just like watching, please, please, please. And he, he finally, we heard that, that blessed beep of the metal detector, and it was like hearing this, it was better than angels singing to me, because uh, I knew something good was, was going to happen, and he put his, he had a sieve that he was digging through the sand, and he stuck the sieve in, all the sand was filtering out, and I'm watching, and then, yes, right there, my wedding ring. We got it. We found it again, right? And I ran up to him, I hugged him, he thought I was very, very strange, I'm sure. Um, the whole beach around us, everybody, everybody started clapping. It was almost as good as like our actual wedding day. It was, it was pretty great. That's a story, a true story about me. When we tell stories about ourselves, about other people, we learn things about each other. You learned a number of things about me through that story. One, I'm really forgetful. This has been true since I've been in third grade and left my backpack on the bus continually, week after week. Uh, I'm forgetful. I value my marriage. I have a gracious wife. And I love the outdoors. There's power in a story. There's great power in a story. There's something about telling a story that there's this universal kind of language that transcends traditional boundaries. Everybody loves a good story, right? This is why kids, you, you call them up for story time, and, and they come running. You, you just saw it with the kids' sermon, right? They, they come on, they, they, they run. Everybody likes a good story. That's why Jesus taught in parables. And as Christians, we each have a unique story. 
Every single one of us, every single person here, we all have a unique story to tell. And in fact, Scripture says that there's a specific word for this particular story, that the story of us and God, our God story, you could think of it in a way. It's called a witness or a testimony. And we can just go with this kind of working definition of it. A witness is a true story about what God has done for you. It's oversimplified, but it's a good starting point. A witness is a true story about what God has done for you. It's got to be true, it's got to be honest, and it's got to point to Jesus. And the Samaritan woman at the well had a story to tell, too. We've been camping out on this text for the past few weeks. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Uh, Jesus meets her, he talks with her, he gently confronts the sin and pain and brokenness of her past. And this woman is just so affected by the message that she's heard, that she runs back to her village to tell everyone about him. So that's where we're at today. We're going to read the very end of this encounter, and then we're going to reflect on the incident as a whole, everything that we've covered over the past three weeks, and we'll see what we can learn about how to become better witnesses, better storytellers. So our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Just four verses, 39 through 42. John 4, beginning at verse 39, and I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's word. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So here we go. Three things we can learn from this encounter about being better storytellers, better witnesses. Number one, consider the context. Number two, create space for conversation. And number three, cultivate courage. I felt pretty proud of myself this week. All of these started with C. So I was like, I got to just, I got to run with that. But it's very true. You'll find all of these grounded solidly in the text. Number one, consider the context. Another way to ask this question is, where am I and to whom am I speaking? So where was Jesus and to whom was he speaking? Well, Jesus and his disciples, they were in Samaritan territory. And remember, the Samaritans had different beliefs than the Israelites. Their scriptures were different. They worshipped at a different place. And they claimed that they were the the true Israelites. They even had a different name for the Messiah, the Tahib. In other words, this was the mission field. Now, this is the mission field. This is Jesus and his disciples outside the four walls of the synagogue, out on the town, literally at the neighborhood watering hole, where everybody knows your name or something, I guess. Uh, And I want you to notice something important here. Jesus didn't open this conversation by quoting scripture. He didn't. 
why not? I mean, this woman had all the wrong beliefs. She had the wrong version of the Bible, and she worshipped at the wrong place, Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. Didn't she need to be corrected? But Jesus didn't open with a Bible verse to set her theology straight. Instead, he opened with an invitation for conversation. Why? Because context mattered to Jesus. He knew this woman didn't share the same foundational beliefs. So instead of demanding that she learn to speak Christianese, he came to her where she was at, he learned to speak her language, and he presented the gospel in a form that she could actually understand. Same message, content did not change, the gospel itself did not change, the form in which it was presented changed, right? Same present, different packaging. And you'll notice this as you read through the New Testament. Jesus actually changed the way that he preached. He never changed his message, but he changed the way that he delivered it depending on who he was talking with. When he was with Jews, for example, he did quote a lot of scripture because he knew that they shared that same foundation, right? Law, prophets, and the writings, the Old Testament. They could start out speaking on the same wavelength. But he didn't do so here because he knew who he was dealing with. And his overriding concern for this woman's soul gave him like a, a kind of nimble flexibility as far as the way that he presented the gospel. He considered the context, her culture, and then he spoke in a way that actually made sense to her. Now, missionaries, foreign missionaries in particular, they do this all the time. So our church supports a number of uh, overseas and domestic missionaries, one of them being the Ben and Sarah Hosh family, and they're over in Taiwan. Now, before they went to Taiwan, they had to do a lot of intense training. They had to learn the language of the people. They spent many, many months in deep language study, trying to learn Mandarin and Hakka, which is a, a tribal language, so that they could familiarize themselves with the customs of the people that they were going to, to serve, to be with. Now, they didn't demand that the Taiwanese people learn to speak English and listen to the Gaithers. Instead, they came to them where they were at. And there's actually a fancy name for this kind of thing. It's called contextualization. Contextualization. And Tim Keller defines it in this way. To resonate with, yet defy, the culture around you. To resonate with, yet defy, the culture around you. So to tell our stories, our God stories, effectively, we, like any good missionary, got to learn the language and the norms of the culture around us. That, that's the resonate part of this definition, to resonate with the culture around us. We have to learn about the non-Christians, their values, something about the music they listen to and the movies they watch in order to vibe with them as the Gen Z people like to say. It gets bad when you have to Google what do the kids, what does this mean? But uh, not saying that happened to me, but you know, some, some of us. Um, we have to be in the safe wavelength or the gospel, it's just going to be unintelligible, right? It's going to be like ships crossing in the night. We do that by learning to respect their hopes and dreams and the things that matter to them rather, rather than treating them with disdain which is easy to do, easy trap to fall into. 
And the goal is not to become like them, to be identical with the culture. That is not the goal. But the goal is to earn the right to speak truth into their lives and to show them that we care enough about them to actually spend some time learning about what matters to them. That's the resonate. And yet, we as Christians also defy culture in the sense that we prophetically speak God's truth into the world, pointing out the places where it falls short of God's standard. Right? So there's the resonate with and yet defy. The Apostle Paul, he explains contextualization. He doesn't use that term, but this is exactly what he's talking about. And we all do this every day, too. The Apostle Paul explains it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So that's number one about how to become better storytellers, how to become better witnesses. Consider the context. Number two, create space for conversation. Let me ask you this. How much time would you say you have built into your schedules for unplanned conversations with people? Like if I pulled up most of your Google calendars, I'm guessing you're going to have a couple hours chunk where it's just like just un unscheduled conversations in case I happen to, to bump into somebody, right? Yeah, me either. I struggle with this. Now, I don't know about you, but my to-do list is so long, and I'm so focused on get not my honey-do list, my to-do list is so long, and I'm so focused on getting things done, that even when I am talking with people, like, I, I'm kind of checking my watch, right? Like, okay, let's move this thing along. What's the point here? Um, our culture is based on efficiency. It just is. And if we don't schedule every spare minute, then we're considered inefficient at best and lazy at worst. But here's the thing about the gospel. It is gloriously inefficient. As Pastor Greg Finke says, the gospel is gloriously inefficient. And by that, I don't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't produce results. He does, and sometimes it's actually immediate. What I mean when I say the gospel is inefficient is that the Holy Spirit is not beholden to our timetables. He's not impatient the way we are. As Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, the truth is that when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, he was a guy who had stuff to do, right? He genuinely had places to go. And there were moments when he had to be efficient with his time, but not always. And certainly not here. He had to talk to this woman 
at the well, even though he was scheduled to go to Galilee. This is where he was. They were between Judea and Galilee. Samaria was just supposed to be the, 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 the middle, the place that they passed through on the way to get there. And yet he has time for a conversation with this woman, giving her space to open up to him, not rushing things. And then he spends two days with the Samaritans in their village with the result of what? What, what happens? Many more come to faith. Yeah? There's a big difference between treating, and maybe you've experienced this as well, there's a big difference between treating someone as a person and as a project. It's a big difference, massive difference between treating someone as a person and someone as a project. When you treat someone with the dignity of a human being made in the image of God, loving them as they are unconditionally and not according to their behavior, they can sense that, can't they? They pick up on that. They can sense the genuineness. But if you treat someone like a project, even a project to convert, they can sniff that out too. They can tell if you're being disingenuous. Telling a good story often requires some uninterrupted time. And I can only speak for myself, but some of the most meaningful conversations I've had with people are the ones when that particular person, just by their very presence, they have like an air of unrushedness about them. I don't know how to describe it. But they have time for you. They're an unhurried presence. So that's number two, create space for conversation. And number three, cultivate courage. Here's an important question to consider. Do you believe that your voice matters? Like, do you really believe that? Do you believe that your voice matters? The Samaritan woman certainly did. And she told the people of her town after this encounter with Jesus, she said, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, <laughs> maybe it's just me, but I think her confidence here, I find it a little bit funny because she doesn't really have any right to it. She's a, a really unqualified witness, if you stop to think about it. Uh, she had so many checks against her. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman in that day and age, which is certainly a check against you. She had a sketchy past. She's not even sure that Jesus is the Messiah. She still seems to be questioning here. She's a new convert and doesn't know much, and yet none of this disqualifies her from telling her story, and through her imperfect witness, a whole boatload of people are brought to faith. Boatload is not in the original Greek. Um, have you ever felt like an unqualified witness? Like your testimony is too boring? or not dramatic enough, or not quite ready to share? Here's the truth. Jesus does not share those concerns. You don't have to reach a certain degree of biblical literacy or doctrinal sophistication to be a witness for Jesus. All you need is a story to tell others and to invite them, in the words of the woman, to come and see. He can use your story to create faith 
in the hearts of other people. So what's your story? And what opportunities might God be presenting in your own life to share it? Who are the people he's placed in your path where you can say, hey, here's one thing that Jesus did for me. Here's one thing. Here's one way. I mean, if you, like me, are not by nature a super courageous person, that's totally okay, but my advice to you is this. Find another Christian who is. There are some courageous Christians out there. Maybe you know one. Maybe you've met them. Maybe there's someone here today that you need to get to know a little better. You need to spend some time with and and see where does that courage come from? How How can that rub off on me? And there's a reason Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. He knows that the challenge of being alone is often too great. And so we do our our best work when we're linked arm in arm with other people. So just to review, we tell our stories well when we consider the context, when we create space for conversation, and when we cultivate courage. As we wrap up, I I just want to show you this picture. Some of you may already know, but this well we've been talking about this whole time is an actual place in Israel. Uh, it's, it's there to this day. A lot of the times, these places in, in Israel, they maybe have a, scholars maybe have a general idea of, of where it is, but not specifically. This is a unique case in that we know specifically this well is the one that Jesus met this woman at. That's the, the scholarly consensus. And there's an Orthodox church that's uh, built over the top of it now, but you can still go down into the, the crypt. You can walk down there, and you can walk up to this well. You can see it. You can draw water from it. You can, uh, you can actually still get a drink. The well itself is over 100 feet deep, and it hasn't run dry to this day. So, Stan, if we could play that clip, it'll give you a, a better idea to, to see what, what this is actually like. Of all the places in the Bible where we know Jesus was at, this is the closest we can get. The well is certainly deep, as Scripture says, and is around 120 feet or 40 meters deep. Here you can see an example of how long it takes for a cup of water to reach the bottom of the well. Now what a blessing to be able to drink out of this well that is around 4,000 years old, just like Jacob did, those of Jacob's family, Joshua, and many others throughout history, and as Jesus did and the Samaritan woman. The well of Jesus is deep, and it never runs dry. It brings life to our sin-parched hearts and creates oases in the desert. The gospel takes dead sinners and brings them to life. So may we be a thirsty people who see our own sin and long to drink deeply of God's grace. May we enjoy the blessings of the spiritual oasis, salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sin. And then may we go forth and invite others to come and join us, to come and see, to come and drink deeply. Because our sin may run deep, but God's grace runs deeper still. Let's pray.